everyone and welcome back to this Sunny Go One Piece podcast. I am back, feeling much better. And on this episode, we're going to be diving into episodes 349 through 351, which will cover manga chapters 455 through 457. And Moria is finally revealed and we get to see the full extent of his plans locked away behind a massive freezer. Alright, so synopsis. With Brooke coming to the rescue, he imparts some background and useful knowledge on how to defeat the zombies. However, by this point, Luffy's shadow is taken from him by the Shichibukai Moria and is placed in a building-sized giant zombie named Ors. With the crew scattered and Moria's plans well underway, the Straw Hats need to figure out how to regroup and retake their shadows. Alrighty, so just a couple differences here. So in the manga, when Moria is finally fully introduced, we actually get to see his title card complete with his former bounty at 320 million berries, as well as his favorite motto, which is rely on others, and also his favorite saying, which is you do it, um, both indicating just how lazy he is, kind of. And I'll go into this a little bit more in the actual thoughts on the episode. But yeah, the next difference that we see is the sequence of events at the beginning of episode 350 is a little bit rearranged from what it is in the manga. So in the anime, after Luffy's shadow is stolen, we see the direct aftermath of the cowardly trio reacting to that. But in the manga, the first thing we actually see is not the cowardly trio, but Brooke explaining more about Moria's sort of MO and the zombie's weakness to salt. But yeah, aside from those two things, there really isn't too much altered in these sets of episodes. So let's get right into the thoughts. After Brooke's epically cool takedown of the spider monkey, whose name we actually learned in the last episode is Taralan, most likely a play on the word tarantula, uh, something that's interesting is that Brooke is fully aware of their weaknesses and as well as how to, as he puts it, purify them so that they don't ever come back. Whatever he does seems to actually release the shadow that's been infused within the zombies. And yeah, we'll find out what that is later. But before that, one translator's note I wanted to point out here is, I believe this is the first time we hear Brooke refer to his skeleton puns as skull humor, quote unquote, in the subtitles, at least on the Crunchyroll subs. However, I have no idea why they changed this, as in the Japanese, he actually just says skull joke, which is also in English. He even says it in English with a Japanese accent, albeit. So I don't understand why the need to retranslate this. It doesn't really make any sense to me, but I, I guess skull joke is... I, yeah, I, I, I don't know, to be honest, why they felt the need to change that, but I do, I do find it really weird. I also find Brooke's contradictory jokes hella funny though, where he says to Frankie, let's put the joking aside and hear me out, when he's the one joking, (laughs) with Robin constantly calming Frankie down, reminding him multiple times that he's already dead, even though Frankie keeps reiterating that he's going to try and kill him if he keeps up with these stupid jokes. But I love how after a while, even Robin grows a little weary and tired of these stupid jokes and lets Frankie beat him up. Later on, Robin herself gets scary when she's mad at Brooke, seeing that she still has that dark streak in her from kind of her villainous days. But after this fun exchange, it's here that we finally learn the backstory of how Brooke ended up in this predicament on Thriller Bark, as well as the true nature of the zombies and how they're created. 
It turns out pretty much everything we've surmised is true. Moria is in possession of the Kagekage no Mi or the Shadow Shadow Fruit that allows him to separate the shadow from the owner and place it into the body that Dr. Hogback has prepared, as well as control the shadows. I think one thing that always stood out to me about this whole exposition dump is the idea that Brooke puts forth that shadows in One Piece, you know, the, the One Piece universe are sort of like a second soul, which is why they retain the personality traits of the shadow's owner, even when put into a zombie's body. But that level of like sort of the mysticism and sort of the fantasy sci-fi aspect of One Piece concerning one's shadow opens up a lot of different things about how souls and the afterlife work in One Piece because there are a lot of references to souls and willpower and, and sort of to some extent the afterlife in One Piece as well. It's not an overly religious sort of series as it no one it doesn't really d- dive into sort of the mystic parts uh, of One Piece but there are a lot of mysterious things and I just I just find that this sort of added layer of the fact that the shadow represents a second layer of your soul quite interesting like what happens to the shadow soul when you die does it also go, go separate and, and go into a separate afterlife? It's kind of crazy when you think about it a little bit harder. However, one nonsensical detail I wanted to point out about this flashback where we see Brooke's example of someone's shadow being taken and put into a zombie. Why is that dancing martial artist constantly dancing even when he's in danger? You'd think if you were in a situation like that, you would just stop you know you'd stop dancing instead of just being like just stupidly like wiggling (laughs) over and over like it just seems really weird I mean I understand why this is played like this because obviously as a writer Oda wanted to easily visually you know shorthand demonstrate to the reader slash audience how the person's personality is transferred to the zombie and so we see the human dancing like this and as soon as the shadow is put into the zombie we see the zombie also dancing in the very same way, indicating to us very quickly and easily that yes, this shadow transference does actually carry over a lot of the mannerisms and personalities of the original holder. Following this, we finally get our first full reveal of Moria. And something to note is how he says, turn me into the pirate king to his three phantoms, which are Perona, Epsilon, and Hogback as if he's selfishly ordering his crew to just kind of carry him and do all the work to make him the Pirate King. Unlike what Luffy always says, which is that he will become the Pirate King. And and this kind of indicates to us that he will work to be the Pirate King. Not to say that he can do it without the help of his crew, but that wording and sentiment behind the two phrasings really indicates to us the reader and the the viewer markedly different approaches and philosophy towards the same goal. And yeah, you can kind of see this sort of being set up to sort of not just study Moria, but to, to sort of put a mirror up to Luffy's character and his motivation as well as how he treats his crew. And you'll see this being developed further and further throughout Thriller Bark as we learn more about Moria and the Straw Hat crew. And like I mentioned in the differences section, you can even see this in his supplemental bio info with the title card in the manga that I referenced. The In the manga, when Moria is fully introduced, we get to see his title card complete with his model, rely on others, and his favorite saying, you do it. So you can see that he has this overall lazy philosophy of having 
other people do things for him, mainly his zombies and his three phantoms, to just sort of, yeah, just carry him to be the, the Pirate King, which obviously doesn't work. And we later we later hear why, you know, why he fails. Also, I know I mentioned this on the last podcast. I really just don't vibe with Moria's choice of voice. I just think he's kind of miscast. I'm not saying the actor is doing a bad job, but I just think this was a case of miscasting. He just sounds too much like an old man and not at all threatening. And he, he's just more annoying to listen to than anything, at least me personally. I guess when I was reading this in the manga, imagining what Moria would sound like, I imagine something more akin to like how Dracula sounds. Like, I don't necessarily mean the accent, like, yeah, I want to suck your blood type of thing, but just a more smoother and more creepier voice. Not someone that sounds like a crotchety old man complaining about youths on his lawn. <laughs> just, to, just to, you know, name an example. This combined with the fact that when you start putting two and two together, Moria, while he does have quite an intimidating crew and army, he he himself is probably not nearly as strong of an opponent as I had first imagined. I say this because he's become completely reliant on his devil fruit and his subordinates, but doesn't seem to really do anything himself. In addition, once we get the reveal of, of his exact bounty, which was frozen at $320 million, It's only 20 million higher than Luffy's current bounty, which is essentially nothing in the grand scheme of things. And of course, bounty comparisons have to be taken with a grain of salt, as this was Moria's bounty before he joined the Shibukai. And we don't know how long ago that was. Also, Oda has stated on numerous occasions that bounty value is not solely dependent on combat strength, but more so how much of a threat the person poses to the world government. But in any case, it just... Moria just not only sounds annoying, but he also doesn't seem quite as threatening as some of the other villains, particularly when you compare him to the other Shibukai we've met so far between Mihawk, Crocodile, Kuma. Well, we don't really know Kuma's extent, but Doflamingo as well in his short little scene at at Marijua. They're all much more intimidating and they sound more intimidating as well. Anyways, my rant aside, next we get a scene we, where we see the reactions of Chopper, Usopp, and Nami who are hiding inside Kumashi to the news that Zoro, Sanji, and Luffy have all been caught. And this is, I believe, the first time the monster trio have actually been referred to as the three monsters. Now again, the term monster trio is strictly a fan-made term for the three of them, but much of that was born out of Nami and the others referring to their collective strength as kaibutsuki or monstrous on several occasions, including here, I believe, which is the first time they've been close to being called the Monster Trio. No one in the series, nor Oda, has ever actually referred to them as the Monster Trio. But I believe this is the first time they get close to it and where sort of the, the trend of them being called the Monster Trio kind of starts. I love that added bit of continuity with Us- or Chopper still unable to hide properly as when the three of them are observing Hogback, Shindri, and Absalom bickering, Chopper peeks out backwards with his legs sticking out instead of his head, and it's so cute and funny. However, during all the bickering, Luffy manages to chew his way out of the cage, and this is actually a pretty funny callback to Orange Town all the way back at the beginning of the series when Nami handed Luffy over to Buggy in a similar cage, where he also tries to chew his way out of the cage but was unsuccessful. 
And however, this tells me that not only has Luffy gotten stronger in terms of his combat strength, but also his teeth and jaws have grown stronger in all this time, enough for him to actually be able to chew his way out of a cage this time. And, and I don't know why, but even that small detail like kind of impresses me. I don't know whether that was intentional. I have to think it was an intentional co- like callback to that because it's just so weird to to have him this time actually be able to chew his way out of the cage when we see him do trying to do that all the way back in Orange Town. But yeah, Luffy almost gets away, but Perona uses her powers of her negative hollows to subdue Luffy. And his negative emotions are... His are so random. Like, most people just kind of double over and say, I'm worthless. He states that if he was reborn, that he should come back as a sea cucumber. Like, what does that even mean? And yeah, I love it when Luffy gets hit with the with the negative hollows. Because it's so funny and random. And so, yeah, episode 349 ends with the dramatic event of Luffy's shadow being taken from him. As he goes limp, which is a pretty shocking thing to see. And yeah, to be put into a zombie later on. Specifically some sort of special zombie that they've numbered as number 900. Which is crazy to think that they have potentially nearly 900 zombies at their disposal. Although we will eventually learn a quick fact. Why this number probably isn't as high as 900. But yeah, we get a very interesting nugget of information that's often really overlooked. Even by me, the first time I read through it and didn't pick up on what this really meant for Moria's character till much later. And what I'm referring to is how Moria mentions how he talks about the absolute loyalty that shadow zombies display. And that if he had a similar army, he wouldn't have been beaten by the Yonko Kaido in the New World. And there is so much to take away from this tiny little throwaway statement. It shows us that Moria, like Luffy has a dream of becoming the Pirate King and once ventured as far as the second half of the Grand Lion in the New World, but was swiftly defeated by what is known to be one of the most powerful pirate crews in the world, a Yonko in Kaido, setting up just how much of a threat level a Yonko-level pirate really is. They are on a level even above the dreaded Shibukai, who are still considered to be some of the most fearsome pirates on the seas at this moment. Enough so that the, that a Shibukai was defeated so handily that he had to flee the New World back to the first half of the Grand Line. And the more interesting about thing about this that informs us a bit more of Moria's character is how he puts the blame on his crew and subordinates, reinforcing that idea that he lets them do everything while Moria kind of reaps the rewards and deflects all the blame. Now this part might be a bit, a little bit of a spoiler territory, But later on, we do get more clues as to what he really means by this. But we do get a sense that this defeat at the hands of Kaido really changed his outlook on his dreams and about his subordinates slash crew. Of course, we'll talk more about this when this sort of gets fleshed out a little bit more throughout the arc. We then get more explanation from Brooke to Frankie and Robin. And by extension to us, the viewer, the shadows are tied to the original person, hence the person can't die or else the shadow will disappear too. This is probably why there's been a need to have over 900 zombies, because eventually some of those original people will die and more will need to be procured. But Moria still probably has a massive army in the several hundreds still. We also learn that their sole weakness is salt, and the only way to separate the shadows from the zombies 
and to return them to the owner is to shove salt into their mouths. Now, Brooke explains this away that since the shadows were granted via a devil fruit, it makes sense that salt, which is one of the key ingredients in seawater, a devil fruit's primary weakness, is why this works. But even putting that aside, salt has been used as a symbol of purity in all sorts of cultures, religions, and stories. Particularly in Buddhism and Shintoism, salt is used to purify as well as a means to ward off evil spirits. And yeah, so that's a very common thing to see in many different stories, even in, in other you know, Judeo-Christian stories as well. Hogback is rightfully scared of Brooke as he seems to be the only one that's ever figured out the zombie's weakness of salt. But during this exchange, there's this funny fourth wall breaking joke in that Sindri keeps standing in front of Hogback, obscuring him from the view of the camera. But, but this poses the question, do they know the camera is there? Or does Sindri the only person that knows that the camera is there? Because no one is actually standing there as it clearly shows everyone else is to the left of the frame out of it. So this joke is strictly playing on the fact that she's standing in between him and the non-existent camera and us, the audience. And she'll go on to do this a few more times later on uh, as the series goes on as well. But I do find this joke pretty funny. When we cut back to Frankie and Robin, we see Frankie overwhelmed by what Brooke answered to whatever question he asked him, both of which we won't find out till later. But I guarantee that you'll get the same reaction out of this as Frankie is displaying here. And honestly, I can't wait to talk about this one. For those that know, you know. Uh, we get some buildup to the zombie that Luffy's shadow is about to be deposited into, and it's some sort of legendary creature that was feared 500 years ago. And nothing could have prepared us for this reveal, as it's not just a zombie, but it's some sort of giant-sized beast named Ors. He gets his name from his reputation as being the, big enough to be called the continent puller, like how an oar propels a boat, but in this case he propels a continent. Something to note is that Ors is even special among giants as he is considerably larger than even regular giants that we've seen thus far, like Dori and Bragi or Oimo and Kashi. And he's said to have been from a clan of giants outside of Elbath that was much more malicious, hence sort of the, the Majin or devil epithet that he has. And another slight translation note, at the beginning of episode 351 where Hogback references how he wishes he had Moria wipe Sindri's memory as well, just as he's doing with Luffy's shadow, he then laments because that way he could still eat using plates again. But then Sindri claps back, I should break your kneecaps too, which is brutal. While in English, this works just fine as a random threat. But in Japanese, one way to say kneecaps in a more colloquial way is to call them hizanosara or knee plates, as hiza is knee and sara is plate. So you can see that it becomes a play on words where Hogback wishes Sindri would stop breaking plates, and Sindri responds that she wants to break his knee plates as well. So it's a pretty brutal clapback here. And one little detail that you get to see in the anime that's obviously absent in the manga is that you can see the skin color of Oris change once he becomes reanimated. He's all gray without color due to the lifeless nature and the frozen state of his body. But once he's a alive, quote unquote, he becomes a lot more of a reddish color. I will say they really milk Oris's awakening as much as possible and extend it as long as they possibly can. You know, like, like Toei likes to do. 
Despite the, the terror that is Ors, he still has Luffy's shadow after all. And the first thing he wants from being revived is meat and calls for Sanji to make him food. Even though he's not quite aware who Sanji actually is. And with this realization, Nami, Chopper, and Usopp figure out what's actually happening. And this really upsets Chopper, Chopper for putting so much trust in Hogback. Setting up his epic duel with him, no doubt, in the climax of the arc. However, before they can get away, Absalom catches up to them and captures Nami. The only reason why I bring this scene up is because it's here that I realized how Usopp carries around his Kabuto slingshot, which should have been obvious to me, but it's here where I put two and two together. And I also like the, the bit where Chopper still doesn't know that Sogeking and Usopp are the same person. <laughs> And it's funny and really cute, uh, you know, a callback to Enya's lobby where Chopper was also very much enamored with Soge King, but still didn't know that Soge King and Usopp are the same people. From there, the pair are overwhelmed by zombies, and there's this really suggestive shot of Usopp's nose just kind of sticking up out, and, and a zombie grabbing it in a very suggestive way and starts tugging on it. And you can't not have your mind drop into the gutter after seeing this. It's like... Yeah, the animators knew what they were doing here. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, I don't know what it is about this arc. It's a very, like, inappropriate arc in some ways, too. Like, very dirty in, in a lot of ways. Some in funny ways and some in very disturbing ways. Like I've mentioned with sort of the rapey nature of Nami's sort of storyline. Also, I paused during the, the dog pile with Usopp and and the zombies at the 2139 minute mark. And I was surprised they didn't try and sneak in a panda man here. I was like looking for him, but yeah, he wasn't there. And we, I, I, I haven't seen a panda man sighting in a while now that I think about it. But just then when things look like it's doomed, it's Frankie and Robin to the rescue. This time with salt in tow. Again, it's so heartwarming to see Robin refer to Usopp and Chopper with their names and a genuine smile. And I love it. And seeing Robin like sort of warming up now. But yeah, with that, all the setup and first act of Thriller Bark, I feel like, have come to a close here. And we start getting into sort of the more meatier stuff. And from here on out, Moria has been fully revealed along with his special zombie oars. We'll have to, to see if the crew can regroup and figure out a way to get their shadows back, as well as help Brooke with his. Also, the next set of episodes, he, there is a couple episodes in particular that I have been dying to discuss forever now because it has the most mind-blowing callback ever. And I, it's, it's definitely one of my favorite moments in the entire series. So I can't wait to talk about the next episode. But anyways, if you did enjoy this, send me a like or comment. And if you want to join me on this journey of rewatching One Piece, please consider subscribing. Check out my Instagram and Twitter account at Podcast for updates of when I post new episodes or to see some pictures of my manga collection. Also, I've been streaming on Twitch every now and then, so if you want to come chat or watch me play games, I'd be happy to see you at twitch.tv slash sunny underscore underscore go. And as always, I wanted to thank you for taking the time out to listen to my podcast. Just a small spoiler section, just a really tiny one. But if you're not interested in that, stay safe out there and I hope to see you on the next episode. Bye.
All right. So the one little tiny spoiler thing that I kind of wanted to mention here is concerning ores. And one thing that always kind of pops in my mind, and even though the chronology doesn't quite line up, is could ores have been the original Joy Boy? You know, because in in Marijua, we see him with the giant straw hat. And that straw hat, I wonder... Could could that have belonged to Joy Boy? And if it did, did the original Joy Boy, was he actually a giant? Like, was it Ors? Because Ors feels like the only person big enough to fit that hat. And so it would also be very poetic that Luffy's shadow gets placed inside Ors. But then again, it's like you see... The reputation that Ors had as being a devil, but then again, yeah, I mean that's not too big of a, a, a argument against it. I think the the biggest thing against this sort of theory is the fact that Ors was said to have lived five hundred years ago, whereas Joy Boy was more active prior to the Boyd Century eight hundred years ago. So there's there's this three hundred year gap between when those two uh, existed, because by the time the Boyd Century happened. Joy Boy was already gone, and obviously he had been defeated by the world government. And so, yeah, it is interesting to see if maybe, maybe not Ors himself, but one of Ors' sort of type of people, like race of people or species of people, that's kind of giant, that Joy Boy was actually a giant giant. Um, is an interesting thought, and it's one that's always kind of crossed my mind ever since they revealed that giant straw hat in the freezer. So, yeah, just kind of a weird, interesting thought that I wanted to bring up there. I don't really have much else to say about it other than just kind of a a general wondering uh, ever since that came about. But anyways, yeah, that's all I wanted to talk about. So uh, thank you for listening to that, and I hope to see you on the next episode. See ya.